must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Feel, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. We're breaking down yet another silo tonight. In fact, we are leaving the healthcare field entirely and going into the world of finance. Tonight, we have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Will Butler. Known for his metaphors and analogies, somewhat witty and encouraging Will is a physio-turned-financial advisor. As an irreverent magnifier, his mission is to change healthcare by improving the lives of clinicians through financial education and planning. He enjoys few things more than Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Helping clinicians succeed is one of those things. He values humor, knowledge, a good barbell, and he welcomes PTs to schedule a chat with him at any time. Will, I mean, I cannot thank you for coming on enough. Uh, We're so pleased to have you. I feel like you and I have had kind of similar experiences throughout our journeys in regards to burnout. So I'm just really excited that you're on the show tonight um, to talk about that topic. And I realize that we kept your bio relatively brief, but is, is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about you that we may have left out of your introduction? Well, I think uh, I think part of the reason that I appreciate the brevity is that I remember if we go all the way back to high school, I remember sitting in an English class, and I think I had been droning on for about 10, 15 minutes in a my teacher cut me off and says, Will, never forget that brevity is the soul of wit. And kind of tried to carry that on through within those types of things. I think, I think sometimes what I probably get asked the most when people kind of hear the background and flipping from healthcare into finances, people say, well, does that mean you went back to school? Did you do this? Did you do that? What does your training look like? How does this work? And those are all the exact same questions that I had when a good friend of mine, his name is Jeff. And many people, I mean, I've shared it probably time and time again. And uh, but Jeff was the one who really challenged me to take the skills that I appreciated most about practice as a clinician and and to lateralize those into a financial advising role and skill set. And so, so that's all well and good, Jeff, but I'm here to build relationships, provide some education, you know, help people out of pain and achieve a goal or two. But just because you decide something doesn't mean that knowledge comes into play. And he says, don't you worry, you'll get that training. And he was right. What, what I learned and was kind of eye-opening to me is that I think maybe because in healthcare, the educational pathways are very formalized. What I've started to realize is that within the realm of finance, so many of my colleagues in the world are, have incredibly diverse backgrounds, from being engineers to being accountants, which kind of makes sense, to history majors, to physical therapists. And what I started to realize is that it's a very strictly regulated industry. And then if you don't put in the effort to know the rules and and the knowledge and the material, like you're just not going to get licensed. Like it's just not going to happen. So you sign up, you get your coursework, you start working through things and find the right kind of mentors, a lot like in PT, which is what I spent a lot of time doing. And uh, I found it to be a really rewarding path. And I would say the only thing probably would get added into that when you talk about coursework and people want to know what kind of coursework and just working through a certified financial planning coursework takes a while. And a lot of that self-guided and the test lets you know very quickly whether or not you're learning what you're supposed to. But I think that's probably maybe the only kind of nuts and bolts that on an education-related podcast got left out of the bio. Will, now, 
as you kind of said, you're somewhat of a non-traditional student in that you kind of took several different routes to get where you're at today. And do you think you could kind of outline your academic journey for our audience and kind of let us know how it landed where you are currently? Yeah, absolutely. I started out at a community college because, well, I didn't want to waste any more money on school than I had to. At least that was my mindset. And and then hopped from a community college where I had like an academic scholarship, transitioned to a local university, picked up a couple scholarships there, and then finished out my exercise biology, is what they called it. The degree doesn't even exist anymore at a Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. And from there, I took my time, applied to the University of St. Augustine in Florida. I would like to say that I put a ton of thought into it, but what actually happened is I ran into an old friend who said, oh, yeah, I'm going to this program. I'm going to come out a physical therapist and an occupational therapist at St. Augustine, Florida. You should check it out. And I shrugged my shoulders said, okay, let's look at it. And that's where I went through and uh, that's kind of where my PT education took place. And then from there, I just kind of hopped kind of a little bit all over the country with clinicals and then practice. I practiced in the state of Washington and then relocated back to Ohio to be around families. Family's kind of the reason why I made the transition. It's part of my history. It's part of what motivates me. And my family's located in Dayton, Ohio. So it's kind of how I ended up back here. Yeah, I, I really commend you, Will, on your, your journey because it, it really did take a lot of focus in order to pin down each step you know, as lackluster as it seemed at times with the shoulder shrug and the, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go here and do that, there were still a lot of steps <laughs> in that process that needed to be taken care of in order to get, get to where you're at now. So like I said, I, I really commend you on that process, man. Um, but let's jump right into this week's topic, right? And let's talk about burnout because, like I said, you know, as you and I and many other clinicians in the healthcare field and, and other fields know, it, it is indeed a real thing, you know? But just to give some context... It, could you maybe explain a little bit about what is the phenomenon of burnout and what are some signals that someone is either undergoing or leading towards burnout? I would say that, like, you know, without getting too technical, because, you know, I always get a little bit nervous. Maybe that was instilled during my PT education of, quote, staying in my lane. But I would say what, what I see, because I really do try to make myself available to clinicians, it's my way of advocating for uh, healthcare providers, especially physical therapists, is to just be an open ear and to be a neutral party. And I've really been surprised at how many clinicians have reached out to me and have just said, Will, what do I do? I feel like I've made a terrible mistake. Like, I don't feel like I'm good enough. I feel that my directors have too high of expectations of me. I don't feel that I feel like my plan of care is maybe too vanilla. Maybe I'm not catching the right the right signs and symptoms. And too much, too little. I got these complaints. I don't feel like I don't, I'm not excited to get out of bed. You know, I had more fun working my summer job in college than I have here in my professional career. You know, I get sick before I go into work. Like I start hearing these types of things and, and it, and it seems to have been, and it, it seems to come in a couple different stages from what I've observed. It, it seems, especially for the fresh clinician, and I think a lot of it is because you've kind of been let out of the gate, right? And I kind of liken it maybe to like a caged dove of sorts where you've been brought up and you've been groomed and fed and watered and protected and sheltered and kind of from what you believe, like, oh, this is what a dove does. This is how I am. And then lo and behold, graduation comes along and we open up that. We open up the cage and then we just kind of awkwardly fly off wherever. And, and who knows where those doves land? And then you get there and you're like, oh, this is what it means. I got to go find my own food. I got to go do these things. I really have to be proactive. I have to be an autonomous clinician. And I think that, I don't know if it's true burnout, 
I sometimes wonder if it's the perception of burnout that that fresh clinicians seem to experience the quickest because nothing comes as easy as maybe it was perceived. I don't know. Those are some of, some of my thoughts off of my off the cuff of me. Does that trigger anything for either of you guys? I probably experienced burnout six times or so in my career, um, and the first time was before mm-hmm. I even got my PT license. You know, for really? me. Yeah, it was it was uh, more of a life situation where I had started in a master's program at ECU that was transitioning into a DPT. Um, so I, I stuck around for the DPT program. And in that year, you know, I was kind of studying to take my boards and stuff like that. And uh, my dad had had some heart problems. And so toward the end of our culmination of the transitional DPT, uh, he ended up getting sick and, and passing away. And so I'm living at home now, studying for my board exam, working as a PT tech in the hospital where he passed away. And so every morning I had to walk down the hallway and pass the room where he passed, you know. And for me, it was just like a grind going into work every day while I was trying to study for my board exam. And I mean, it was it was painful. I was like, why am I even doing this? Like, I, why am I having to go through this struggle? And literally, you know, revisit the site, the scene of the crime, if you will, time and time again, day in and day out as a physical therapy technician. Like, do I even want to do this anymore? Like, you know, and uh, at that point, you know, the window of opportunity for me to graduate in time with the transitional DPT closed and I didn't finish the, the prerequisites in time. So I ended up, you know, taking my board exam and passing eventually. But then I had to go through tra- uh, St. Augustine's transi- transitional DPT to finally finish that. So, I mean, you know, for me, it was it was just a life experience that there was nothing I could do about it. It was just, the, you know, the way things happened. And, uh, you know, I was burnt out before I even got my license. I didn't want to go on. I didn't want to, you know, pursue physical therapy anymore. But, uh, you know, it took a couple of uh, deep kind of find yourself moments where you just kind of got to pull your pants up a little bit and grit down and say, all right, you know, my dad would have wanted me to finish this out. He would He would have really, you know, been ticked off if I didn't at this point. So I just got to bury my nose in the book and get it done, you know? And so, you know, my knee-jerk reaction after I finally passed my exam was the hell with this. I'm leaving Charleston, I'm leaving the area, and I'm traveling for a year just so that I can, you know, kind of find myself and just go on a journey and and be with myself for a while, you know? Um, And so that was kind of a way that I kind of dealt with, with burnout before I even knew what burnout was and that it was a thing in the healthcare field, you know? But, Will, what what were you... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm going to ask a follow-up question. I'm curious, yeah. Scott. So tell me, so that was kind of the first thing, and then you kind of explained how you got over the hump there. What What do you feel as you progressed professionally? What What were kind of, because I feel like I reflected on maybe the fresh clinician, you reflected in as well as Brandon, and then as well as you said, even before you got into it because of the grind and the life, and how like you get, when life, life is a very real thing, and like it doesn't, it like, you, sometimes you don't you don't choose when you experience that. So then, when were the times in your other professional pursuits? Like, at what stages did did you feel like you were hitting that wall again? Yeah. So later on, in, after I traveled for about a year, you know, I kind of settled down and and found a permanent position at a uh, hospital system, and uh, I was working at an outpatient clinic there. Kind of worked my way up to a supervisor position within about a year or so at, at another hospital um, outpatient clinic. It was the same hospital system but a different location. It was a little bit smaller outpatient location. And 
you know, it was just kind of same same thing. It was like, you know, I got up, I went to work, I treated my patients, I went home. I got up, I went to work, I treated my patients, I went home. The the the, the system itself was very mundane. It was very boring. It was, you know, very cookie cutter. And, you know, you, you kind of made incremental raises every year to kind of keep you happy, so to speak, uh, you know, small cost of living type raises. Uh, not every year, but, you know, most years it was anywhere in the 2 to 4% range. You know, and you kind of just keep working way up. But there was no real, you know, once you hit supervisor position, there was no real movement. Uh, there was nowhere to go, you know, aside from director rehab. And, you know, the director was never going to retire. I mean, she's one of those people who just loved her job and, and was there for life. So I, I literally hit a dead end, you know. And at that point, I was just looking for anything different. Literally didn't matter. I was like, you know what? I don't care what uh, the setting is. I don't care where it is. I just need something different because this is boring as heck and I can't take it anymore. So that was that was probably the second time I hit it. And that was probably after about four, four or five years in the same hospital system, the same uh, setting. And, and at that point, and this is part of the bigger picture here in my quest toward becoming an expert clinician or expertise, right? The first five years of my life, I did not do anything with practice like intended practice. So for those first five years, I'm spinning my wheels and I'm going to work and I'm treating my patients and I'm doing what I think is right. But I didn't do much as far as like continuing ed. I didn't, I literally was just collecting a paycheck. You know, it was like, hey, I'm doing the right thing. I'm helping people get better. Ho-hum. You know, I, I didn't do any reflection. I didn't look at ways to better myself in the field. And that was all part of it. I think that all added to it. It wasn't just the hospital system's fault, right? It was my own fault as well because I wasn't doing anything to break the monotony and break the mold, you know? So the first year was adventure. The next four or five years was kind of blah. And then after that, you know, I started the next portion of my career where, I, like I said, I started branching out and reaching and looking for, you know, tough and challenging situations and, and tough and challenging locations and settings, challenging myself, uh, looking for CEUs, things I hadn't tried yet, things that might interest me, you know, and then just really trying to build myself as a better clinician. So I've been, a, you know, a clinician now 11 years, and I would say only five of those, six of those were really geared toward practicing with intention. So I've still probably got another four years or so under my belt that I need to get um, with this new method of practicing that, uh, you know, will help me feel comfortable as an expert clinician. So uh, it kind of lost a few years there in my botany, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I feel a lot better about the path and trajectory I'm on now, for sure. Yeah, and I, what I liked about that is, so, like, it seems that reality is, seems to be the common theme initially, which, I mean, is a lot like, I don't know, maybe, I think maybe it was David Butler. probably only remember that because we got the same last name, but we talked about the Toblerone effect with mm -hmm. rehab, where you just, which is so fun. What, what I have found most interesting with regards to clinician burnout, whether it's genuine burnout, whether it's just the feelings of, the symptoms, whatever, what, I, what, I've, what I've seemed to have notice is that our entire profession comes down to managing stressors in various settings, um, especially an outpatient, right? Because you can't handle it, you get this, all right, let's work on that, post-op, manage it, make sure it kind of save you from yourself, so to speak. But what's so interesting is what we apply and what we, the expectations that we help, we try to help set realistic expectations for patients. I don't think we do that for ourselves as professionals, as clinicians. And so, you get really excited, you graduate, you get all the photos, the hashtags, all those types of things. 
for most people for the mean, right? I know Scott, your experience is a little bit different, but you get through it and you, and you push through it, and then here you are and you're at this peak and then all of a sudden things get very real. Oh, I don't have a CI to turn to when I have these questions. Oh, all of this falls into onto me. Oh, like the professional realization seems to be the first. So then you dip in on that Toblerone chocolate, right? Those little pyramid pieces, you hit that dip. And then you then you slowly start to build back up because you start to get your groove and allow yourself to kind of groove. And then like what you said, Scott, is you kind of plateau if you're not being intentional, if you're just going through that. And then it seems like the next valley that you hit is kind of a, per, you're stalling professionally. But then you've got to find a way, like you said, to, to, to climb back up that. I just think it's so interesting to me that we, we're very great at applying these things physiologically and somewhat psychologically within the walls of the clinic, but we don't seem to do that very well with, within ourselves. Yeah, I, th- I think that goes across healthcare. I think we're very good at caring for our patients, but a lot of times we don't care for ourselves. And that's not just PTs. I think, like I said, that's just a commonality you see in the healthcare field. But, Will, what are some of the ways that you experienced burnout, and, and how did you go about getting out of it? Yeah, I think, I think some, of it, some of my burnout dealt with the traditional imposter syndrome. I'm a, I'm a bit of a squeaky wheel, and so I was very quick to find people who I really admired professionally who were about going through maybe a little bit, either on the same entry level or had gotten in the field just a little bit before me, um, and I was just kind of, they, they turned into sounding boards. And I think the types of things that really kind of burnt me out is like even something as simple as documentation that seemed to just be so easy for everybody else just seemed seemed damn near impossible for me. And like, it just really frustrated me that like, I felt like I was a slave to the, instead of leading and guiding and improving, I felt like I was kind of following everything with a mop. And then when I would sit in front of, you know, patients and they're asking me all these questions and do all these evals, all these intakes, and like, I just didn't feel felt like an imposter. I felt like I had like that somebody laid out a bunch of roles on a table, not like literal roles, but let's say like uh, scripts to a play. And I like just reached down and picked up a part and my part was physical therapist. And I just felt dramatically underprepared. And I would say that was probably when I first started kind of feeling symptoms of burnout. Um, and it really was the encouragement and having a strong professional social circle. Uh, I remember very vividly Scott Morrison, I think he had you and I were both out in the Pacific Northwest at the time. I just messed with him, like, well, what do I do? And he was just, wasn't one to provide a lot of sympathy, very objective person and very helpful. And he just let me know, like, hey, this is, you're not, you're not, you're, you're not, this is not a unique circumstance. You're going to make it through it. And chances are you're probably overthinking much of this. Just enjoy what you can, you know, grind through what you, what, what's just got to get done and just keep pushing day in and day out. And it was kind of knowing that other people were kind of going through it with me that I was kind of able to put the head back down and keep pushing forward. So that was probably some of the symptoms. And then there, there were other times where I felt like um, professionally maybe I was being, I call it being carroted, where kind of in the commercials you see the rabbit or the dog being led by a carrot or a bone uh, being held out in front of them, which you kind of alluded to with like a little bit of incentive here and there. But even if I would have got it, it wasn't all that substantial. I mean, just knock the thing off your head and go to the fridge and get your own carrot, right? And I'd say that's probably, those are probably the times when I, I felt most, most maybe those symptoms of burnout. I don't know that I ever got truly burnt out because I know that that's not why I left clinic. I didn't step out of that. I, I'd reached one of those crossroads where I didn't want to look back and, and pass up on an opportunity because I was a 
afraid. I, I, I just didn't want to have a regret. And so I, I made an opportunity out of something that had been suggested. And that's kind of how that was. But yeah, as far as that, that would probably be the symptoms, the close, what I'd reflected on just a minute ago. It's interesting to hear your guys' take and that deep reflection of that. And, and you know, and Will, do you know what the research says about burnout among healthcare providers in general? I, I've, I've got a, I like to magnify and spin things in my mind. And, um, so I haven't taken too much time to look at the facts surrounding that. Because the last thing that I want to do is focus on focus on that. All I know is it's significant. I see headlines all the time, especially in other healthcare uh, fields, that like it's significant. Like it's a significant enough thing that it's catching headlines and they're instituting programs to kind of head it off. And, and so I know it's a real thing, but as far as actual numbers, I have not dug into those. And Will, kind of with that, do you see that overall, the burnout perspective, do you feel like that's overall something that's going to get better, going to get worse, or kind of stay the same? Well, my, my belief is a couple of things. I think uh, we need to be patient for professional calluses to form. I think that it's okay to not feel like you're in a great place professionally. I think it's okay to be frustrated. I really think it's okay to have negative feelings. Like, I don't think I mean, that's part of life. We have to accept and we have to appreciate that because there's lessons, there's things, there's, and even if there's not lessons and in, in things we can take out of it, it's just part of life. And so I think if you can appreciate that station and that, that mindset, but I think professional calluses really need to be developed. I, I find that one of the things like, uh, I, I don't know, I can't even remember who said it. Maybe it was like, I feel like maybe it was Gene said it at UpDoc. Maybe it was Gene, maybe it was somebody else. I don't remember. Who cares? Who it actually was doesn't matter, but one thing I love about that you said that's great about social media is that everybody gets a voice. And the thing that's terrible about social media is that everybody gets a voice. And I think what I take away from that is you see what people are able to put up these facades and able to, to put up, you know, it's very difficult to not compare the successful clinician who, who's been, who hasn't had the same opportunities, who had different opportunities, who's maybe been practicing, you know, here are the fresh clinicians with, you know, two, three years of experience, year of experience comparing their, themselves to these later stage clinicians, you know, in, in that, that disparity right there, I mean, that, that causes problems. But I, I do think that it, it's important that we as professionals develop some more resilience and appreciate that and maybe push just a little bit harder and, and try just a couple more things, like basically treat ourselves as we would treat a, treat a patient. And that when we hit plateaus and, and they present as genuine plateaus, instead of wallowing in that plateau, kind of like what, what Scott was saying earlier, find a way out and then really pursue that until you hit that next plateau. And keep looking to lateralize, lateralize, lateralize. I think that's, I think that, that those are just some of the thoughts when you ask that question. That's just kind of what's spurred. Yeah, that, that's a great take on it, Will. And, you know, from your perspective as a financial advisor, with you mentioning some of these contributors to burnout, uh, one of them being like financial stressors, right? Uh, that can have crippling yeah. effects from student loans, mortgages, uh, practitioners feeling pressured to take higher paying jobs, you know, that may not be great places to work. You know, this is very uh, common, unfortunately, amongst providers. I know I, I fell into that uh, once or twice. What are some questions that a provider working in any job really should ask themselves to determine if they should stay or leave a job? I think some of it is to, I, I think before, everybody says I want a higher paying job. All right. Well, what's the value exchange? What are you What are you bringing? What effort are you willing to put in to receive that? Okay. So I think that's one thing. What What do you actually want? 
if you're just chasing a dollar, you're you're going to hit a point, and then you're going to go to the next dollar, and the next dollar, and the next dollar. But there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to accept that that's how you are, and that there's probably going to be more more thorns that you step through because you're chasing that dollar, right? But I think the the other thing is is that going into and, and looking at these positions is that you need to have a plan for yourself because that'll help you be able to understand what what types of financial financial hardships maybe you will need to endure and that you will need to tolerate. And then I think the big thing is is that you need to actually sit step back and, and write down what it is that you want to achieve because what I find a lot of times is that it's I have to have a job just because I have to, but they don't really have a purpose for what they're going to do with what that job offers. And so you hit these ceilings and you haven't you just said yes to the job before exploring whether or not there are actually any opportunities to pursue what's really significant to you. I don't know if that made sense, but that was kind of what triggered in my mind when you asked that question. Oh, well, that did make a lot of sense. And, you know, and say for example, let's say if a healthcare provider to kind of go the other way and kind of choose a lower paying job that the individual felt was a much better place to work. What are some financial strategies that healthcare providers in that situation can do still to maximize repayments on loans or mortgages and save despite having a lower salary compared to some of the other higher paying um, jobs that are out there? Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that we have to accept is that if if you if you want a certain lifestyle that's not because of your maybe your loans or, or what your other dollars need to do, it, if you want a lifestyle that exceeds that and you can sit back and objectively you can't expect to squeeze the lifestyle you want out of out of just a very typical job. Like if you if you want exceptional results, you need to look and cre- you need to create exceptional opportunities. And maybe you accept that lower paying position because the mentorship that you receive is going to create and give you the confidence to be able to specialize in something else that maybe trickles into, I always think of the hashtags hustle and grind and all of those things and whatever, everybody's got their own feelings about that. But I think that, that if that lower paying job is going to give you a skill set that you can create value and start something outside of that to get a little bit more money, whether it's through coaching, whether it's through or picking up another job, whether it's those types of things. Furthermore, if, if, you, if that's not you, because I also don't like to force entrepreneurial ventures onto people because it's your life and you need to have the experiences that, that you want to have, not, not experiences that other people want you to have, you might, you, you might just have to pick up shifts in another setting. Like, like that, that if your financial stressors, whether it's student loans, a family, et cetera, like you're just going to have to accept that maybe that 40-hour, 45-hour position just isn't going to cut it. Yeah, that's an unfortunate truth that I think uh, a lot of people have to face sometimes. But, you know, well, I, like I said, this this really has been a great episode for me because I, I think it's been enlightening just to kind of talk about life experiences, you know, and how they lead to things. But I'd like to leave my own one tip for our audience and our listeners, and then, and then I'd like to ask you for uh, – one of your tips and then Brandon for one of his, but you know, just in general ways that you can recommend uh, for clinicians or, or really anybody in any industry to avoid burnout. And the biggest one for me as of late has been to plan out and utilize all of my PTO in as far in advance as possible, right? Like plan vacations, plan time off, even take a mental health day here or there if you if you really feel like you're going to need them throughout the year. Those I kind of try to keep in my back pocket. But, you know, for the most part, I try to maximize my days off as, as much as a year in advance. Um, because really, A, getting away from work 
is always going to be helpful. B, spending it with people that you love and have fun with, friends, family, I mean, that's just going to lift your spirits and really help boost your, your feelings in general. You know, and C, you know, you're given that PTO, you earn it, so you might as well take it. You know, letting it go to waste or letting it kind of disappear like that, that's not even an option to me. So that's that's my probably one pro tip for avoiding burnout. I'd love to hear you and Brandon's follow up on that. So I, I don't I don't know if it's a tip, but I would say it's, it's, it's do something. I think it's okay to be sad, angry, upset, frustrated, you know, the negative sides of like what we've been talking about burnout. But I don't think it's okay for that to become self-pity. And, and the reason why I think that I've been – I know this is weird, but I've been thinking about door hinges a lot. Now, like, now a large door turns on a small hinge. And so by by spending too much time and allowing that pity to become your hinge, you become you get into a reactive mindset. And then life then starts to dictate your course instead of you dictating the course. So I guess maybe my one, my one tip would be to be more proactive, which I believe to be passionately proactive is going to require some very intentional introspection. I think that would be kind of my single tip. I love that one, Will. And honestly, for me, that's a really strong one for me personally. But um, I guess for my tip, I'll go kind of with another one that I felt really helps me. And for me, what tends to get me burned out is when I feel like I'm not really making a difference in people's lives or I feel like I'm kind of hitting kind of a clinical rut, if you will. What tends to help is kind of going along with Scott's and kind of taking breaks and always reflecting for me I always like to read kind of the the positive patient reviews and the letters I've gotten over the year over you know my limited time in practice from thankful patients to me that always helps me inside being like you know what I am making a difference and it kind of helps prompt my mindset to think of it more positively rather than to go down that self-pity route but I also know for me that if I'm not constantly content or educationally clinically stimulated in terms of not getting any new types of information or new um, research things or anything like that, I tend to really let it hit me quick. I'm starting to get to that point and everything else is looking good and I'm like, you know, maybe I need to switch it up and kind of maybe go to another course and kind of freshen up a little bit. I like that. I like that tip a lot, actually. And, you know, and guys, we've, we've talked about personal burnout here quite a lot and I think there's a lot of value in that. But let's turn the tables here a little bit and let's say, for example, that, you know, a coworker, family or friend it's kind of showing some signs of burnout or we're suspecting that something's up and potentially someone's going down that route. You know, Will, I'll ask this to you and then I'll ask this to Scott, but how would you recommend interacting with and helping that individual kind of getting out of burnout? Yeah, I think, I think, and I know it's really cliche, but I think being that open ear and hearing everything that that person is saying so that you can kind of get and then helping them you know, asking them good questions to kind of prompt, right? I think like what, I mean, clinically, clinical relevance, you know, a lot of times if you're asking the right questions and you're given the right kind of, uh, doing the right kind of history and intake, you know, the diagnosis and the solution seem to present themselves and providing those questions, I think would help them. Sometimes people just need to get it out. They spend so much time keeping it inside that they just feel they need to express it without feeling like they're being judged. So I, that seems to have been what's been most effective for the clinicians who will schedule and call and talk to me is, is I don't feel I do anything magical, but I, I just I just listen. Provide hope where hope should be provided. Validate concerns uh, with followed closely with solutions for when it does seem appropriate. 
and just letting somebody know that they're not alone. These are my thoughts. Yeah, I, I kind of echo that that point, and I think uh, you know, for me, it's a just being present for them. You know, literally just being there, whether it be to listen or you know just to have them vent to you for a little while. And then I always love to dive into their interests as well. You know, like you said, the, the answer will present itself if you just ask the right questions. So I, I always try to turn the discussion toward something they enjoy, something they love. Definitely uh, hobbies are always a good one. I try to get them going on that and just try to revive and light that fire again and bring that, that joy back. You know, something they love doing, something that really interests them. I know a lot of times with patients, especially older patients, it tends to be the grandkids, you know, and uh, that's always a, a good one, a good way to just talk about it and let them kind of discuss and go off on their grandkids. I think, you know, sometimes it's, it's like I said, golf or a hobby or, you know, model airplanes or whatever it may be, but a, a lot of times there's that one thing that they really love, and I try to gear them and, and guide them toward that and, and start a conversation about that, you know, and just get them thinking, hey, maybe you should take a day and go do that, you know, spend some time doing that. You know, get away from this place for a little while. You know, go go re-spark re that fire and that hobby that you enjoy so much. Or, you know, take a mental health day and go, go fishing with the grandkids or something. You know, just things like that, giving them ideas that kind of guides them back to their own interests. Because, again, that, that you know, one day of relief uh, can really go a long ways. It can really uh, recharge the batteries, so to speak. No, totally. I and, like I'll, and I'll kind of expand a little bit on those two because I think those are – very critical, especially with being able to listen, kind of gather what's really troubling the individual, but also really helping them to kind of talk through kind of both aspects and kind of saying what do they think they should do and, you know, kind of getting them to realize by what they're doing, like, is that been working? Is that not been working? And is this really what you want to do to get to your ultimate goal? And, and I feel like, at least for me, the limited times that I've talked with people is that they're not doing something that they want to do or it's not in their short-term plan to help them get to the long-term plan, you know, because it makes sense if, you know, yeah, you got to do something for short-term even though it's not something we like, but it'll, it's kind of essential and it kind of builds to that, that goal or to that next step to get to that long-term goal. But, but at the end of the day, I mean, I want that individual to make the best decision that they can and just really realize kind of what they're thinking and kind of just consider all aspects with what they really want. Yeah, good point, Brenda, for sure. So, Will, we've talked about hobbies and, you know, kind of escaping the reality, shall we say, of healthcare for a little bit to kind of avoid some burnout. But, you know, let's say reading books or listening to audiobooks is one way that someone can avoid burnout from their current job. What are a few of the books that you have been reading recently or that you have read in the past that really have made an impact on you that you would feel that you feel would be helpful for healthcare practitioners or financial minds to read? Ooh, I, uh, I'm going to disappoint you because I don't have like a financial book suggestion because I think sometimes maybe if the person's feeling burnout because of financial means, maybe that'll angst them up. I don't know. I think I'm actually stretching that maybe a little too far. But what I would say for me that has been the most helpful is I always, for many, many years, had the mindset that reading fiction was a waste of time because there's so much truth out there. That was kind of the mindset. So I was only ever reading blogs and commentaries. And it's really funny that I just mentioned truth and nonfiction because, you know, oftentimes how blogs work. But getting into nonfiction-related things, clinical material, financial material, those types of things. But what I have found that has given me the greatest being able to step out of my own reality is digging into some good fiction. And lately I've really been into 
uh, a fantasy series called The Stormlight Archive by an author by the name of Brandon Sanderson. And it's funny that you asked me this question because they just started his third book today. I'm a big Audible fan because I spend a lot of time in the car, moving around, doing different things, so I don't always have a chance to sit down and actually read the book. And um, when I pulled up my Audible app and it told me I had 55 hours remaining of time, I was like, and then Scott mentions scheduling out your PTO. I was like, well, well, there it is, right? That's like two and a half days of listening. But it really is kind of all terrible jokes aside. I have found that good fiction enables you, you, you have to get into the character to really appreciate what the author is communicating. You have to remove yourself. You have to step into their world, which I think really helps to create distance um, and allows the things that maybe just don't matter to dissipate a bit. Yeah, I love that. That's a great take on it, Will. Um, We like to end each episode by asking all of our guests this one final question, and that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher learning, DPT or other healthcare-related or just higher learning, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? I would draw a pretty hard line through what I would insert. What I would add would be basic financial literacy because what I've found is that a lot of the conversations that I have with people are things that not only should they have learned maybe in their graduate program, which I don't think at a graduate level, like you're getting very, very specific in what you should be learning. I don't necessarily believe that that's that's their responsibility, but that responsibility isn't being met in their undergrad curriculums. It's not really being met adequately in high school curriculums and junior high curriculums and so forth. But I would say what, what I think would be the most significant would be putting in practical financial literacy coursework, not necessarily how do you pick stocks, how do you diversify your portfolios, how do you like, how do you get all into these like things that make people excited, cryptocurrencies, um, all those types of things, but getting into them and how to understand your loan, how do you, uh, what, how do you make your dollar work with it, what are some different budgeting systems, what are this, what is that, and really getting a lot more practical, how do taxes work, how does that affect that, I think that that would be that far outweighs understanding the histories of, you know, Robin McKenzie and Stanley Paris and, and the likes of those, like not to take away from their, you know, the various contributions of so many people within our profession as physical therapists, but their historical ch- achievements are preparing us professionally to really capture the autonomy that I feel that we forfeit by not being more financially prepared when we enter professional practice. Oh, well, I think that is a great take, and I think that's a good point to have out there, especially, you know, and Joe kind of even said something very similar um, a a few months back, and we kind of had him on the podcast talking about how, you know, really we just need to really tell people that, you know, it's basically the concepts are really not that hard, but how to really show people how easy it can be implemented and how it kind of relates into their life and just learning some basic stuff. And he very similarly said along the same lines of kind of creating um, you know, some sort of method of integration with some basic financial literacy components. And you know, he advocated, of course, for like you to do that much sooner rather than later. Because, yeah, I mean, I think especially given the, the cost of education, also combined with kind of the salaries that's out there and what it takes, I mean, I definitely think there's not a lot of room for error or lack of knowledge in that department. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more with that. Like, I think we need to get away with, from some of like we just need to get more practical because we just waste too much time in that in that regard. Absolutely, and and you know, well, thank you so much for your time and for really ta- having some really enlightening discussion and 
really hearing some good points about overall the concept of burnout because I definitely learned a couple new things and I especially really like that fiction tip you talked about the book because I even messaged um, Scott in the interview as soon as you said that you know I only do nonfiction I don't like fiction because it's a I was because it was a waste of time dude I gotta be honest that is totally me right now <laughs> but, <laughs> but but I but I respect that take and I really honestly hadn't thought about it that way you know, in terms of viewing a fiction book and really immersing myself in the character, really. So uh, I'll, I'll be I'll have to try that out in the near future. But I, and I thank you for that because I mean that's I'm, I always love something that challenges me like that that I can even add in and kind of incorporate into life. So you know, thank you for that and for all you've talked about. And you know, is there is there a place that our audience can find you online or on social media if they kind of have any follow up questions or are interested in financial planning advice? Yeah, I think, I don't know if you guys do show notes and those types of things, but I can give you like my scheduling link for people to just kind of book a call. They want to chat if they're feeling a little burnt out and they want to kind of go through and talk through some things. If they've got some financial planning related questions, those types of, that types of stuff. But as far as that, like if you're on Facebook, I'm pretty easy to find. It's my name. I have a professional page, but I don't do a whole lot with it because I like working with people, like them to know the same. On Twitter, which I'm not incredibly active on, it's at simply will be. And I don't know, those are pretty pretty much the, the best ways to get in touch with me is bug me on Twitter or through Facebook. But yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I've, uh, I, always, I always enjoy getting a chance to have some conversation about things that aren't talked about, frankly enough, because maybe they're eggshell topics. So I appreciate you inviting me on and letting me ramble a little bit. No, Absolutely. well, the pleasure is all ours, man. And thank you. For- thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.